You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Dan Baer's interview with the writer and director for Lorelai, Sabrina Doyle. You get free room and board in exchange for three hours of chores of the day. Understood? Yeah. It's gonna feel strange at first. Just give it time. So what's the key to self-control? Self-care. I saw Dolores the other night. Never saw two kids love each other the way you did. I wrote you. I wanted to write you back. I got pregnant. I have three total. Been busy. Yep. I get touched You want to move out of the halfway house and into your girlfriend's house? Says here she has a part-time job and has three children. Well, she ain't winning any Mother of the Year awards bringing you home. It's okay. Waylon's family now. Howdy. We got to surprise her like Dad said. You know I ain't your real dad, right? Me living with you, tying your shoes, playing I Spy games, none of that makes me your dad. What then? What? What makes you my dad? We are going to move to L.A. after I finish high school. We are going to watch the sun go down on Sunset Boulevard. Not go to sleep until it, until it came up, up in the morning. morning. And now I'm a maid with three kids, and you're an out-of-work felon. Why don't you take one bite? Have yourself a little fun. Just making up for lost time, that's all. You smell like diesel and cheap perfume. I don't even know how to do this anymore. They're not even my... Just say it. They're not your kids. But they should have been. Because it wasn't supposed to be like this. Believe it or not, you're a gift to this family. I loved you so much when we were younger. And then you just went away. Where the hell are you? I'm making good, baby. I just wait and see. Welcome, everyone, to the Next Best Picture podcast, where we are talking with Sabrina Doyle, the writer, director of the new film Lorelei, starring Jenna Malone and Pablo Schreiber. Sabrina, how are you today? I'm great. How are you doing? Excited to finally be getting this film out there after a year of waiting. Yes, it, it's been a very long journey for Lorelai. You all started filming in 2018, is that correct? Yeah, we wrapped, I think, just before Thanksgiving 2018. It seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> a very long time ago. So I'm wondering if you could sort of walk us through that whole journey, because even for, you know, a a relatively small film like this, this seems like an unusually protracted experience <laughs> between filming to finally getting people to see it. You were supposed to play at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2020, and it was virtual completely. No one was able to gather together and see it in the theater, and you've now had that opportunity. But what has, what has that process been like for you as the person who created this yeah so after so we wrapped at thanksgiving just before thanksgiving 2018 then we went and did um we drove that ice cream truck um <laughs> back, so it was in la we got it down to la and um and then had to take it back up to oregon back to its owner um so we took the opportunity to shoot some second unit stuff um just so all those shots you see of the ice cream truck driving through the sequoias and all of that 
we shot that as a, you know, we shot that sort of driving back up the coast. Um, just me, the DP and a producer, just the three of us. And um, it, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a sort of enterprise to kind of every time we had to, we saw a nice place where we wanted to have the ice cream truck drive by, we'd have to disconnect the drivetrain um, of the truck. And it all took about an hour. Then we'd have to drive the truck get the shot and then reconnect the shot to the sort of, to the tow vehicle. And it, you know, so every time we wanted to get a shot, basically it was a sort of three hour enterprise. So we, oh, so wow. that took a little bit of time <laughs> driving that thing up the coast. I mean, we didn't drive it. We towed it. It, it barely drives, honestly. Um, um, <laughs> oh, no. um, it was worth it. was worth it. it but it did literally yeah. break down every day we were on set. Um, oh, God. Um, and then, and then, you know, Christmas came and went, then we, you know, we spent maybe sort of six to nine months editing the film. Um, I started the edit with the very final scene of the film, the scene in the, in the, in the dive bar, the mermaid bar, because mm-hmm. I wanted to know I had my ending. And so we started with that. Um, and then we were a very small team. It was just me and an editor, no assistant editor. So the editor was sort of doing double duty on that. Um, and then, you know, the assistant editor kind of takes care of all the, you know, the technical stuff, the kind of organizing of the edit project so that the editor can be free to be creative. But, you know, in this case, we didn't have that. So it took a little bit longer. And then, you know, we're all set to premiere at Tribeca in 2020. Um, and then COVID happened. And so that kind of, you know, that disrupted post as well. Like we didn't have a fully finished film. We, we hadn't color, we hadn't fully color corrected the film and we hadn't fully um sound mix the film and so we had to wait till um till things reopened a little bit towards the end of the summer of 2020 to do that and then we eventually premiered the film in front of a live audience at the Deauville American Film Festival in France in front of a French audience and they're such the French are such cinephiles and they you know they were so the reception was so warm and I you know it was a 1,000 person cinema and it was virtually full with a bit of social distancing but virtually full so it was a wonderful beautiful projection beautiful sound and it was wow. a wonderful it was a wonderful experience honestly in the middle of COVID in the middle of everything going wrong and you know having to wait and everything it was just it really lifted my spirits in the fall of life so that was in September 2020 and we won the jury prize at Deauville um Vanessa Paradis who um her jury gave us the jury she was the head of the jury um last year and she gave us they, they gave us the jury prize which was wonderful and so validating because you know you make a film in a bubble and you don't know how people are going to react but that was just a wonderful moment I mean a really a life life highlight <laughs> for me personally <laughs> and then um and then we you know we screened at a few more festivals the, the only other one I went to in person before Tribeca was the Miami Film Festival which was again a wonderful, I mean, a wonderful experience. It was a bit mental because we went during spring break and it was oh, a very cool. spring break vibe and <laughs> COVID was not happening. Um, and thankfully, I managed not to get COVID <laughs> from that trip. But um, but that was a wonderful trip as well. We won, you know, we won the Jordan Wrestler First Feature Award at that festival, which again was just such a nice thing to have been to be there in person when you win a prize. It's so nice and. And then we finally made it to Tribeca um, just last week, which was which was insane, you know, a big, so, but it was a bookend, you know, it was, we were supposed to start with Tribeca, but in the end we ended with Tribeca. And, you know, the thing I always say is that Lorelai's very much a film about um, second chances. It's about having a dream and not getting the dream, at least not the first time around, but persevering and being creative and reimagining and 
and eventually sort of, you know, achieving something. And it, it feels, it almost feels, it feels almost inevitable that that would be the journey of our film that we, you know, we missed our first chance, uh, for, uh, first crack at this. We missed Tribeca last year, but we've had lots of second chances and third chances to kind of get the, get the film out there and get the word out. So I feel, I feel it's, it's appropriate and almost sort of, it's apt and almost poetic that it would happen for us this way. Yeah, I mean, it is a fantastic journey. And that's, as you point out, this, it seemed, does seem appropriate for the story you're telling in a really kind of magical way, almost. Um, and prior to this, you had only worked on shorts. This is your first full-length feature. Did you find that that delay with editing and the post-production, do you find that that, that helped you in a way get used to I don't know, wrapping your head around it or seeing it differently? Um, no, it was a very intense post-production and we, we, we had the film edited before COVID. And so what's been really difficult is the, what I'm not used to. And I feel we got to a really good point with the edit. I was happy with the edit, but what, what was really hard for me, and I think I hope will get easier, you know, the further along I go in my career was waiting to see what people thought of it. And I was very nervous, you, you know, you know, I very much want the film to be successful for myself, for everyone who worked on it, you know, the kids, um, you know, the lead actors who I think are such tremendous actors who I think should, who shine in this film in a way that I haven't seen them shine before. I mean, they've just had, you know, the opportunity in this film to show so much, so much depth and so much emotion, so so such complexity of emotion that that they show in this film. And so I for everyone involved, I just want it to to go well and and not knowing what the reception would be and not knowing, you know, not knowing what audiences thought of it was was really hard. And you know, you kind of end up sort of second guessing yourself and questioning yourself. You, I had too much time to think almost, you know, it's better to be it's better to be doing than 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 sitting back and thinking. And I had time to kind of I don't, I don't. So I think that part of it was really hard for me. The waiting, the waiting to see what people thought of it. And then that's why Doville was so amazing. I mean, just to, I was so nervous ahead of that screening and then the warmth of it was just incredible. And it's funny, the festival organizer said to me, he said, um, after the screening, he said, oh, they really liked it. And I was like, are you sure they're not just being polite? And he was like, oh, hell no. He said, the French, French don't will, care. The French will let you know if they don't like your movie. <laughs> And I was like, thank you for telling me that after the screening and not because I would have been so nervous. Um, so yes, the hardest thing about, you know, I mean, I felt, I felt very sort of good and good about the edit, good about where the film ended up, but I was nervous about the reception. I think so that's, so to answer your question, that's what was tough for me. Did you screen a, you know, like pre finished, pre fully finished version for friends or family or anything to get, some outside opinions on it or did you really just wait until you had a screening room and an audience no you always do that to some extent I think it's it's because you just don't I mean you you know I mean but we didn't do a we didn't do it the way the studios do it with like Mm. with like you know focus groups and kind of you know members of the public who get a quest you know you know questionnaire and then you sort of then you depending on what their response is you sort of radically check you know we we we're a very small film and we don't have the kind of the resources to do anything like that, but it is always a good idea. And I, you know, to show the film to people at various iterations of the, you know, at various stages of the edit. And so we did that at, at several points and, you know, 
it's always interesting. I mean, taking, uh, getting notes as a filmmaker is an interesting process. And I think I've figured out how to do it, but it's taken me a while. I mean, at one point in the edit, um, someone, a very smart filmmaker, you know, said to me, oh, well, I think, you know, and he was very, he was very, very forceful about, keeps convinced that this was the right, the right path for the film. He said, you should, you should, you should really lean into the sort of Wayland, whether Wayland is going to go back to a life of crime story. Like that's the most, you know, that story is so great. It's so you should even maybe go and shoot some extra footage of like the the bikers and kind of some criminal activities. And, you know, he's very convinced, you know, so, and you know, we didn't have that footage and that's not, we, there was no way we could have re-edited the film to tell, to for that to be the focus of the story. But he was convinced that that was the right way to take things and that that was, mm. that would make it more exciting and more, you know, and the sort of the stuff I really like, the sort of, you know, the, the, you know, the more maybe, I mean, I don't know what you call it. I mean, it's not, I don't want to say more feminine, but that, you know, the, the, the dream stuff, the interior life, the, the kind of, mm. you know, the relationship stuff and the, the real character stuff, actually, yeah. the real character stuff was, was, was not necessarily what, what drew him. And so I, you know, and it, and for a moment I was like, oh, is he right? And then, you know, and then, and then look, I mean, People so people give you notes of the films that they would would have made in your place, right? With that kind of story. And mm. what I've learned with notes is that you can get your head turned and you can kind of you can you can, you know, you can chase one person's notes and then you can chase another person's notes and you'll never make everyone happy. And I, I think what I the rule I have set for myself with notes and feedback is if if it resonates with something I felt deep down, I really, you know, when someone says something, I'm like, yeah, you're right. I, I knew that. Or I, 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 I had a feeling that that might be the case. If it confirms something, I think that I, that maybe I even, that I haven't even articulated, but that I have a, a feeling, a gut feeling about, then I act on the note. And if not, I'm like, well, that's really interesting. And that would be great for another movie. Thank you very much, but not for this one. And so that's the kind of rule I've set for myself. It seems very reasonable. Yes. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. There is something about the milieu of the film, this Pacific Northwestern, almost rural environment that feels very authentic. I can't help but notice your accent, <laughs> not from the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> um, how did you how did you go about capturing that setting? And was this did you always have the film set there, or was it sort of set in generic rural 
community and you just ended up liking this particular place? So the blue collar working class side of the story, I very much understand because that's my background and I wanted to tell a blue collar story because that's my that's my family. That's um, I mean, you know, I'm a first generation high school graduate and college graduate. You know, my my family are what I suppose you'd call manual, you know, unskilled workers, although not unskilled because there is skill in manual yes. work, actually. But um, um, but anyway, the point is, I grew up knowing what um, you know, financial hardship was and, and, you know, knowing what it's like to lack a comfort zone and to kind of to have family tensions caused by money, lack of money and, and all of that. So that kind of that for me was always going to be the backdrop of the story. And then the question of, you know, but then I also knew that, so I understand the dynamics of that kind of family, but obviously, you know, I grew up in London in England and this film is set in sort of small town, semi, as you say, semi-rural America. And so I knew that I, you know, that I had to really, really research the specific place that we would be shooting in and make it really specific to that place and make it feel authentic to that place. And that that would come from research. And, you know, I had been a journalist before coming to the U S and I, I, I trained as a filmmaker at the American film Institute as a director. I did my MFA there, but before that I had been a journalist at the BBC. And so that kind of journalistic sort of ethic of just kind of going, researching, asking questions, meeting people, getting it straight from the horse's mouth. I think I still have that sort of ingrained in me. And so what I did was for a year and a half before shooting Lorelei was I I went, I constantly, and this is part of the reason for shooting in Oregon is that it's, it's, you know, it's a day's drive away. So you can easily sort of pop up and down. So I was constantly up and down between Oregon and LA, just kind of driving around the countryside, um, or, you know, driving everywhere, you know, every small town, you know, within a sort of two or three hour drive of Portland, I've basically been to every kind of, you know, every nook and cranny of that bit of the state I've I've visited and kind of, you know, just really sort of every anytime, um, ostensibly to location scout, but it ended up being so much more than that. It ended up being, you know, meeting people who were unemployed or un- underemployed and just hearing about their lives and meeting people who'd been to prison and hearing about, you know, in Oregon, hearing about how that had been and, and you know, um, and then most, you know, really importantly, because it really helped us kind of make the film, meeting people in the biker community up in Oregon, hearing about their, you know, their lives and how how that community works and how sort of a, a motorcycle club works and how it's structured and all of that stuff. And so it, it really came from, so the lived in quality of the film, the kind of that texture, that sort of, that came from the fact that those were all pretty much real locations, found locations, real places that kind of have that you know, those, those sediments of history, those, you know, already built into them. Um, although the house itself, we, we, we was an empty house when we found it had, was boarded up and we, we ended up sort of turning into the family home. And that was a sort of, oh, massive, wow. that was a I, massive effort from our production designer and her team. I was going a- to ask if you, if that was a house that some people were living in, or if you built it specifically for this, because it does have that very, like, you feel that they have lived there. The kids have lived their whole lives there. Yeah, no, that was a, that was an incredible thing that our production designer and, and her team pulled off, and it was it was it, it's even more sort of impressive than than you'd think, really, because one thing that she did was she wanted to have the house be so authentic that if the actors wanted to open a drawer for whatever reason, that there would be something in that drawer that was really authentic, that was there'd be something in every drawer for them to discover, for them to bring into a scene. So every every drawer just had junk in it from that family, you know, and real, but you know, and stuff that made sense, you know, like unpaid bills, homework, Mm. you know, children's drawings, you know, so every single draw, if the actors had wanted to kind of block a scene in a particular way and 
open a drawer and you know grab something it all made sense so it was all really laid out like a real house so that the actors could feel really like you know this was their space and so it was an incredible thing to do on a tiny tiny budget that she pulled that off you know and to make it sort of feel so visually coherent you know it you know the house really worked with our color palette as well so so you know, I'm just very grateful I had that team working in production design um, to pull that off. But every every other location was pretty much you know just so- something that already existed. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about because as as you mentioned before, that Jenna Malone and Pablo Schreiber they really spark together and apart, but particularly together there is fantastic chemistry between the two of them, and they do give these really wonderfully subtle performances was this sort of like dream casting or did you see when they read together or individually how did how did that coupling happen I just I mean I admired them incredibly individually as actors and I you know I think they're incredible actors that that should be used way more and um, I'm sure will be will be now (laughs) because I hope once people see this and and I think that they brought so much personally to the story. I mean, they kind of, um, you know, Jenna had just had a child um, when after, you know, this was her first major rollback after having a kid and being a single oh, mom wow. and being really open actually about the difficulties of being a single mother. And she has been very open and very raw and very honest about that. And and I think she really wanted to do this film because that 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 character Dolores really spoke to her the fact that she wasn't perfect the fact that she she does make bad parenting decisions sometimes and that's okay she's still you know this woman's life and her dreams still matter and we you know and the lack of judgment I think that the film you know has towards that character I think really spoke to her and then Pablo you know is a father of two little boys himself but has you know it's because of his amazing incredible stature he's six foot five off you know has has done a lot of really cool action stuff you know he's playing master chief in the halo the paramount plus halo series now and or is about to he's just finished shooting that and that'll come out next year and so that's a very big action role but you know for him i mean i think you know he started in theater and so has that kind of you know incredible dramatic training and and also you know he just wanted the opportunity i think to sort of to play a character that was very tender. And, you know, I think Waylon, when we, in our first conversation, he told me that Waylon's tenderness really spoke to him, that, you know, the eventual tenderness, but also the the contrast between him as this enormous guy and then where he ends up, you know, he, you know, he's a man, you know, he's a big guy, he's an intimidating guy, potentially he wears this sort of, you know, kind of dark jacket throughout the whole thing that kind of, you know, so he looks a bit of, you know, he could be sinister, but of course he's not, you know, he's, he ends up being the children's, caretaker and caregiver you know at the end of the day and and I think that you know so the journey that guy goes on you know and what and what he rep what the type of masculinity he represents and where at the beginning and where he ends up at the end I think really spoke to him and then Jenna just has this incredible kind of you know animal quality almost and she's so emotional and and I you know so I think you know I was just so I just love them both as actors but you you never know what the chemistry is going to be like and the first time I saw them together but yes, it was dream casting. I couldn't believe my luck when they both said yes. And um, the casting went easier than I thought. I mean, because we had these two amazing actors say yes to us very quickly. And so, and then the first time we saw them together was um, at the table read, um, you know, a couple of days before, maybe even the day before we started shooting. And, you know, table read, you just sit down at a table and read the script yeah. and you know, put a, you know, <laughs> but that was kind of exciting to hear, just to hear the words from their mouths, even if we were just all sitting at a table and, 
And then it was, yeah, and it was just incredible. The way they bounced off each other, the way, and they're very different actors. They have very different acting styles. And I think very different, almost very different personalities as well. But I think that actually really helped because, you know, they've got part of the chemistry, I think is a bit of friction, right? That's there and kind of, and they and they are, because they have these different acting styles, you know, Pablo comes from theater, Jenna is, Jenna sort of every take is different and they kind of have these different acting styles and and they're both brilliant in different ways. And, and, and I think that, but that, I think that that difference created a bit of kind of, that, that created some of the sizzle and the spark, I think that you see on screen as well as the kind of, cause chemistry is, chemistry is kind of fitting well together, but also having something that gives it a bit of an edge, you know? And I think that, I think that that really worked out. I feel so incredibly lucky about that. Yeah. And they just always had it. You didn't have to push that or help that along in any way. It was just there. I think when you have actors of that caliber, you don't have to do very much. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, um, my bit, I, I wrote a script that they liked and wanted to be in. And that was, you know, I mean, you know, you, you know, maybe, maybe there's a scene where you sort of think, oh, I, I think I saw this scene more like this. And then, you know, if they understand what you want, you don't have to help them get there. They get there themselves, you know? So as long as they understand what the point of the scene is and where it fits into the story, that you know they're off to the races I don't need to do anything and 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 you know also they understand their characters by the end of the the, the by the end of the shoot they understand the characters better than I do because mm-hmm. they've gone deep in their characters in a way that I haven't and they've lived in their shoes and they've lived in their bodies and and so I think by the end of it they they had a better handle on Wayland and Dolores than I did for sure yeah it shows that they're two beautiful performances I'm so proud of them um, yeah it's so good yeah again like this being your first big feature film working with certainly working with actors of this caliber it's all great what was the the biggest lesson that you took away from the shooting process oh biggest lesson um that's an interesting one um i this was a i mean i'll tell you the thing that surprised me about the shoot so i've done a lot of shorts before and I think what surprised me about this shoot was just how much harder it was than any short I've ever done. Because if you, 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 it's kind of like it's way longer than a short film, a feature, but it's almost it, it grows sort of exponentially. So it, you know, it's not like I've done twenty minute shorts before, right? And so this is, mm-hmm. but this is more than five times the amount of work. It kind of just you know because you're doing it all at the same time, and there are so many more jigsaw pieces to fit together, and so. I think going into it again, I will, re- you know, it's really a marathon, not a sprint. And I think you have to learn how to pace yourself and you have to learn how to conserve your energy so that you have enough at the end, you know? And I think just kind of, I think though, it, you know, it's a very, it's a very physical thing directing a movie, actually. It's a very, you know, your energy really matters. You're the director and your energy, you know, informs the energy of the set, I think. And just kind of keeping enough to get to the end. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, it's funny. It's all very practical. It's kind of, you know, but you know, I was sleeping four hours. I never slept more than four hours a night, the duration wow. of the shoot. And that's not, you know, that's not great. Um, so, um, you know, definitely running on caffeine and adrenaline. And so I think, you know, just kind of, I, I think realizing that, you know, that it, that it is, that you do have to pace yourself. It is a marathon, even in the edit. And even like, in like now, like the whole, afterlife of this film the whole kind of you know all of this stuff that's happened since COVID it's a, it's a lot you're in it for a, I mean a, a film is a marriage it's a long-term marriage you never once you once you make a film you, you're kind of bonded to it for life really I mean it never really goes away and it's certainly and I think that just kind of preparing yourself psychologically for that and and you know 
pacing yourself and and realizing it's a marathon I think is important so that's the kind of thing that I you know I suppose I wish I'd known I mean not that you know if I'd known it I might front of my sure um so and now that this marathon is coming to an end you had the closed circle with Tribeca 20 and Tribeca 21 are you looking forward to the next project um looking forward to having a little more of uh, an actual break or what what's next what do you see happening next for you well, I'm a workaholic, so I never feel I, I always try and have breaks and then I always end up work. I mean, I find work meaningful. I do. I find I get I get meaning from work. I love being creative. Honestly, I mean, I find writing as a form of therapy for me. If I'm not writing a screenplay, I, I get I get anxious. You know, so it really grounds me. And so I, I love, you know, I do. You know, break is nice. And I certainly I think everyone needs a break after the year we've had. And so I think I hope we all have a kind of you know, I hope we all have a lovely summer and, you know, but yes, I mean, I do want to, I think it's important to get the next film up and going quickly. I'm hungry to get it up and go, you know, the next film up and running quickly. I have like maybe three or four very different screenplays that I've, there are various stages of development that I'm working on. Um, A couple of, all quite different to Lorelei. I mean, um, a couple of them are sort of science fiction. Um, One's a, I suppose what you call it, a sort of existential coming of age AI story. One's a, One's a cross between, um, do you remember the French cannibalism film Raw that came yes. out a few years ago? It's a cross between that and Promising Young Woman, I guess. And and oh. so those, those are my two sort of genre films. And I think, and then I've got, you know, I've got a medieval murder mystery that I'm writing and then a, a, a drama that I'm working on as well. So kind of all very, all very different and nothing quite like Lorelei. But I do think that the, the way, the things that, the thing that my work does have in common is a desire to sort of, you know, I think you see in Lorelai this theme of like wanting to to break free of boundaries and to kind of, you know, even though Lorelai is a very, you know, it has this sort of social realist element, it's set in a very gritty, grounded, blue collar community, but it also has this dream element that kind of, mm. and so it almost doesn't want to be constrained by the conventions of of that genre, you know, the desaturated color palette, the sort of the documentary style ca- camera work, the sort of unrelenting kind of miserable sort of you know misery upon misery that you sometimes see in films set in the in, you know working class blue collar communities it has it has this dream element this kind of this almost pablo calls it magical realism i'm maybe that's a good word for it um yeah. you know the, these these kind of these elements that sort of that are more dreamlike and i think you see in that a desire to, you know i i really enjoy films that kind of take elements of one genre and mix it with another so i think in between, you know, in terms both within individual films and also sort of, you know, going from one film to another, that's what I want to do. And, you know, I, I, the, the films I really love are films that do that, that kind of, I suppose you'd call it elevated genre. I don't, you know, the genre that has different, you know, that is doing something a bit more thoughtful and doing an, an intentional and kind of, and you always make films in the image of the filmmakers, you know, in the films that you have loved. And it's almost like a dialogue with the filmmakers that you admire. And so those are the films that I really love. And, and those are the films that I want to make. Well, you had me at Medieval mur- Murder Mystery, so I am all in on that whenever that gets made. <laughs> I can't wait. And finally, one last question before um, we call it a day. What would your mermaid name be? Oh, 
What would my mermaid name be? I love this question. You might have to cut, edit out the gap, though. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know what? What? Sabrina is the name of um, a sea nymph. So I have a mermaid name. Well, I have my go. own mermaid name. So Sabrina is the name, the way the, na- the, where the name come from, comes from is that it's the name of the River Severn in Wales. Oh, and, yes. Yeah, and it's in a John Milton poem, Sabrina Fair. Um, and she is, Sabrina is a sea nymph. She is a mermaid. So there we are. <laughs> yeah. It all makes sense. It all makes sense now. You're already a mermaid. That's why. There we go. <laughs> what would your mermaid name be? Or merman name? Oh, my mermaid. Oh, gosh. There are lots of mermen, by the way. They, 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 I know there are. That's a really, really tough one. Interesting one. I, you know, I've always. Titan. I, I am not a Titan. <laughs> Although I, I have always, I have always personally been a, a fan of Ariel because The Tempest is my favorite Shakespeare play. Oh. So even though Ariel, everyone knows as the Little Mermaid. Yeah. I always think of it as the little, you know, sprite. sprite. That, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that Prospero sort of. I love that. But, and you yeah. know what? I love that. And Ariel actually traditionally was a boy, I think. Um, certainly, well, I mean, it's a sprite, so it's not anything, I think. It's not any, but I think always yeah. seems to be played by men. And, yes. And, um, you know, there was a line in The Tempest that, that actually really, really, really was really important to me when I was writing Lorelei. And yeah. um, it's, it's from Ariel's song. It's... Um, it's a few lines actually, and it's full fathom five. Thy father lies, of his bones a coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. And what I love about that, that really inspired me for Lorelai, was this idea of change and metamorphosis and transforming. That the idea that transformation and being, the idea that we can transform and to transmogrify from one thing to another and that change is good and change can be beautiful even if you know not thinking of change as loss because and so the whole point of that is that your father's body is lying at the bottom of the ocean but that can be a beautiful thing and that you know the, so this idea of a sea change I so I was really really inspired by that line I loved it so it's it feels really nice and appropriate that you would want to be merman Ariel fantastic I love it <laughs> well thank you so much for joining with us on this Sabrina and I wish all the best for you in the future and the best for this film. I hope that it has a very long, very prosperous afterlife. Thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Dan Baer's interview with the writer and director of the film Lorelei, Sabrina Doyle, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. This interview was conducted during the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival. And Lorelei will be released by Vertical Entertainment in theaters and on VOD this summer. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time.
You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.